Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to a short scene involving an argument between the disciples over which of them is the greatest. And it is an argument that I think is evergreen uh, to this day. So we're going to pick it up with chapter 9, verse 46, but we're also going to be in the book of Galatians a little bit as well. So maybe get your uh, uh, chapter 1 of Galatians handy as well. Luke 9, beginning with verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, that is, the disciples. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word about Jesus, and we pray that through your spirit we might see him more clearly, we might grow more fondly for his voice, and we might do what he commands. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, last week, right as the crowds, the passage right before this, right as the crowds were astonished over the majesty of God, that is his kingliness, on display in Jesus as he rebuked a demon and healed the boy who was tormented by that demon, right in the middle of that, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, Luke uses that word delivered 12 different times in his gospel, which means you probably should pay attention to it. So, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, he uses it in terms of the testimony delivered from eyewitnesses and the apostles, that is the word about Jesus, the testimony about Jesus, given over to the people. So this is where we get the notion of tradition. Uh, tradition is the Latin version of the word in Greek that means to hand over or give over. So though modern people tend to scoff at certain notions of tradition, our calling as the people of God is actually to tradition, to hand over, to deliver the word about Jesus to each successive generation. So the heart of, of this church's tradition has been and will continue to be Jesus as taught by the Old and New Testaments. Now, a slightly different version of deliver comes in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, where the devil tempts Jesus, saying, The authority over all the kingdoms of the world and their glory has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So the test uh, that Jesus faced is if, if Jesus would only bow down to Satan and worship him, Satan would deliver all the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus without any need of suffering and dying to obtain the kingdom of God. And this is, in many ways, the perpetual temptation put before sinful humanity, both on small and in large scales. It's the temptation to take authority for ourselves, to seek glory for ourselves, instead of waiting on God to provide for us. In fact, the path that Jesus follows and in turn lays out for his disciples is the, the antithesis, the very opposite of what the devil offers. 
What Jesus shows is that life, glory, and authority comes through patiently waiting on God through suffering, not by avoiding suffering. But for the rest of the gospel, Jesus repeatedly warns that he will be delivered. He will be given over to the hands of men, to the shepherds of Israel. And in turn, as he later warns, his disciples following in his footsteps will also be delivered over to the ruling authorities for Jesus' namesake. So what's in view? And this is uh, precisely what the disciples did not understand until after his resurrection is that Jesus will save his people by being delivered over to their enemies and dying at their hands. Now, to see how confusing that is, or that was for the disciples, and really, in some means, it can be confusing for us too, just consider how God, in Exodus chapter 3, uh, says to Moses that he has seen his people's affliction in Egypt, their suffering, and that he has shown up to do something about it. He then says that he will deliver them out of the hand uh, of their enemies, of the Egyptians, and bring them up to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Exodus, as, as we've often mentioned uh, in the sermon series, is, well, really, it's the salvation event of the Old Testament, and it anticipates the greater Exodus in Jesus. That's why a couple of Sundays ago I brought that out, that uh, at his transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were talking about his coming exodus in Jerusalem. Even so, if you know the story of the first exodus, how does God deliver his people out of the hands of their enemies? By conquering the Egyptians and wiping out their armies and humiliating their so-called gods. That's the normal way these things tend to work. And yet Jesus says he himself will be delivered into the hands of men and will die. Well, of course, what is often missed is that at the heart of the Exodus, while all of that warfare is going on, is the Passover, where the firstborn son, the unblemished son of the herd, dies in order to atone for his people and their sin. And even in the conquering of the Egyptians, the son of Israel must die for his people. And what you see happening in all that warfare is the sun dying, and then the people being led out through the Red Sea, which Paul says was their baptism, which led them out into the wilderness so that, as God said up front, they may worship him. That is still the same movement today. It is the same movement of Scripture. Atonement, baptism, worship. That movement right there. Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, gives a simple, yet I think is a pretty profound, understanding of what Jesus teaches here. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we are, we are delivered from sin and death from this present evil age by way of Jesus being delivered over to his death. As God promised Eve from Genesis 3, God would redeem the world through one of her offspring. Her son would atone for the world through his death. This is what is known as the great reversal. Jesus' deliverance unto death means our deliverance unto life. 
It's why Paul teaches we've moved from the present evil age to new creation that is already here, but clearly it's not yet here fully. So like we so see so beautifully symbolized in the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes, by his broken body, we are fed heavenly bread. When he, where he drank a cup of, of wrath, that cup has become a cup of blessing for us and the new covenant in his blood. So without his deliverance into the hands of men, we are not delivered from sin and death. This is why when Peter rebukes Jesus in Matthew 16 for saying he would soon die, Jesus compares him to Satan. Satan, as we've already mentioned, wanted Jesus to steer clear of the cross, to steer clear of delivering his people through his death. Luke, in our passage, then tells us that the disciples did not understand any of this, this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. So they were both confused about what Jesus meant, even as Jesus kept the meaning of his teaching hidden from them, at least for the time being. They would get it later, and in turn, they were afraid to ask him what it meant. So their confusion and their misunderstanding is exemplified in our passage today and the argument that arose among them. Well, in verse 46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. That is, which of them was the greatest disciple? And in turn, which of them had the highest social standing within the Jesus movement? So keep in mind that while Jesus had called the twelve to be set apart as the foundation for the coming church, of those twelve, he had singled out Peter, James, and John as pillars within that church. And of those three, as John makes clear in his gospel, there was a rivalry between Peter and John, with Peter often functioning as the spokesman and leader of the disciples, while John was personally closer to Jesus and was called the beloved disciple. John even goes so far as to give the detail that after hearing the women's report about the resurrection of Jesus, he outran Peter to the tomb. It's a little dig right there in the gospel. And of course, Peter was the first one to stick his head in the tomb. So you could see kind of how the rivalry was going. So what's in view with this is actually the issue of legalism, but not perhaps in the way that people often think about it. Now, the most common way to think about legalism is the kind on offer by, say, Islam and Mormonism. That is, your salvation, your life with God, both now and in the future, is dependent on how good you are and what you've done in this life. So, for example, uh, Mosab Hassan Yusuf, the son of Sheikh Hassan Yusuf, one of the co-founders of Hamas and one of its most important spiritual leaders. He was a Muslim fundamentalist and leading that organization for 30-odd years or so. Well, in his autobiography, Son of Hamas, and that book details his life growing up in Hamas under his father's leadership, his work as, as an Israeli informant known as the Green Prince, one of the most important ones for nearly 20 years or so, and then in turn his conversion to Christianity. Y'all, it's a crazy book. It's, it's, I can't recommend it high enough. Well, he describes, this son of Hamas, describes Islam as a ladder to heaven, a ladder that you work your way up as you move from a novice to a moderate to a fundamentalist committed to jihad. 
And the higher you move up the ladder, the more committed you become to the Quran and Sharia, which is um, the, the body of Islamic religious and ethical teachings, which are all over the place. And in turn, the closer to Allah you become. And the movement of working your way up the ladder to God is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. So, for example, the Tower of Babel, otherwise known as Heaven's Gate, that's what it means in Babylon, is essentially Heaven's Gate, or the Gates of the Gods. That was a unified building project, and really what you should imagine is not like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which was what was in my mind's eye as a kid, but more like a ziggurat, more like a pyramid that you might see in Egypt or in South America. Uh, it was a temple built in rebellion against the true God in order to worship fallen spiritual beings, we call them demons, that promised them salvation and to make their name great. The very thing that Satan promised to do for Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. Now, the Tower of Babel is later in the book of Genesis contrasted with Genesis 28 where Jacob, on the run from Esau near Haran, sees a ladder, and really it's like a flight of stairs of a temple with angels descending and ascending, and that's God's throne room come to earth. And he sees God at the top of it, who repeats the promise he had made to Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father. And God promises that he will bless Jacob and his offspring, and that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he promises to protect Jacob, to go with him and to bring him back to the very same land where he was right there. And Jacob, in response, says, how awesome is this place? And he sounds like a kid, right? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. That is, he rightly understands the throne room of God, which itself is a temple. And this is the gate of of heaven. So he's recognizing against Genesis 11 what the true gate of heaven is. So the difference between Genesis 11 and Genesis 28 and the two gates of heaven could not be more different. With the Tower of Babel, humans attempt to build a name for themselves apart from the true God and look to demons for their salvation. It is working your way up the ladder. And this is what Islam and Mormonism both do. It is why Hamas is com completely committed to jihad and the eradication of the Jews. As they say, from the river to the sea, that is, from the Jordan River in the east to the Mediterranean on the west, we will wipe out every last Jew in the land in the name of Allah. With Genesis 28, God comes to Jacob and promises him life and a future. And of course, these things, every last one of them, are a gift. He does nothing to deserve this. It is not Jacob working his way up the ladder. It is God coming down the ladder to Jacob. And the movement of the first type of legalism is always bottom-up. Always. It's always working my way up the ladder to find life. The movement of Scripture is always the opposite. Always. It is always God coming down, bringing heaven to earth with the promise to give us life in a future. So in that sense, when we talk about Jesus as Emmanuel, as God with us, that has been the movement from the beginning. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of that. 
After all, think about it. Israel did not conquer the Egyptians. God did that for them. And as he says in multiple places in Scripture, you were the least of these. You deserve nothing. I chose to do it for you. Even so, I don't think this is the kind of legalism in view in our passage today. The second kind of legalism, and this is the kind we are far more familiar with, is concerned with our status among other people. Our status among other people. So in Galatians 1, Paul speaks of being a Pharisee, zealously pursuing Jewish traditions before becoming a Christian. And though he appeared to be pursuing God, and in some sense he was, he was really pursuing social standing among the Jewish people. So what do you people think about me? How do you think I stack up in comparison to that other guy or that other group? So whereas for us, this seems really strange, but for us, we use our jobs or wealth or education to pursue social capital, the social capital of Paul's day was through the pursuit of Jewish religious tradition. So whereas we might be impressed by someone's salary, or where they went to college, or if they're a neurosurgeon, or how many businesses they've got going on. Jewish people, they weren't impressed by that at all. What they were impressed by was someone like a Pharisee. As Paul says in 1.16, after Jesus was revealed in him, his life as a Pharisee in pursuit of status immediately stopped. It was over. In Galatians 2, Paul talks about his opposition to Peter over this second kind of legalism. Peter, after he had come to faith, was openly having table fellowship, that is the Lord's Supper, with Gentiles, in particular Gentiles in Antioch. And table fellowship was a symbol of, among other things, their unity in Christ, just as it is for us today. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, among other things, we give our assent to the belief that all of us who are eating are unified by the same Lord and share the same Spirit, and therefore we are one body. This is why the Lord's Supper is never a private meal, ever, but is rather given to the people of God to be had together. Now, before coming to Christ, and this has nothing to do with the actual law, but rather Jewish cultural traditions, Jews, including Peter, not only would they not go into a Gentile home, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. And you can see this at work in Peter's life in Acts 10 with Cornelius, where he struggles against God on this, this very issue. The gospel, you see, purposely brings Jews and Gentiles together. And since Acts 10, Peter had learned to live out the radical implications of the unity of the gospel until... Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up in Antioch, and they began to apply social pressure. And Peter, in response, denied the gospel by refusing to have table fellowship with Gentiles. That's what Paul condemned him to his face for. And this had nothing to do with how Peter thought God saw him. It was about how other Jews saw him. So this second kind of legalism is not about our concern for how we look in God's eyes. And I seriously doubt at this point in Peter's life that he actually believed circumcision saved anyone. He knew better. No, it's, it's how we look in other people's eyes. It's our social standing. It's how we measure up. It's the reason Paul gives in Galatians 6 for why Jewish people outside the Galatian church 
were pushing. They were pushing circumcision on the Gentiles in that church by telling them, saw works, by telling them they didn't fit in with what counts as a proper Jew, the Jewish Christians were creating social capital for themselves. We are greater disciples than you. You literally, literally have not made the cut. It's just like when so-called popular people today you know, create barriers or distinctions for other people. Oh, you're not one of us. Mm, you're not one of us. You're not invited. And because of that, sorry, but we are better than you. To put it still another way, when people feel guilty for skipping church or not spending time in God's Word or not coming to Bible study or whatever, and then give voice to it, it's typically not because they're worried about what God thinks of them. It's rather because they don't want to look bad among other Christians. Now, if they were really, really worried about what God thought of them, they might be praying five times a day like a Muslim does in order to work their way up the ladder, but that is not their concern. So as you can probably imagine, arguing over who is the greatest completely misses or perhaps ignores Jesus' coming death and his call to take up a cross and follow him. Verse 47 says this, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now that Jesus knows their thoughts and motivations ties back into Simeon's prophecy about Jesus when he was an infant in the temple in Luke chapter 2. That it says there that Jesus would reveal the hidden thoughts from many hearts. And what's so often hidden from view, and sometimes we, we don't understand or, or know even our own hearts very well, well, God knows, and he often reveals it for our good. Jesus then says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, the notion of being received and rejected on account of Jesus goes back to the disciples' first missionary journey in the first part of Luke chapter 9, where the disciples if you'll remember, went throughout Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God, and they were given uh, the authority to heal and to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And if a town or a home received the disciples, they were to stay there. And that place was blessed with God's presence through the disciples' ministry. That place was blessed because they received the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, if a town did not receive the disciples, the disciples were to leave the place shaking the dust off of their sandals as a symbol of God's coming judgment for rejecting the gospel. Here, Jesus, reminding them of their own work, calls the disciples to compare themselves against this child. And as much as we may love children and treasure them, and the Jewish people love their children too, no one ranks children high in social status. Nobody. No, really just the opposite. While we may think children have the potential to be great, we don't think they are great right now. Even when we see child prodigies, like little kids playing Mozart or, or whatever, we've all seen the videos, we may be astonished by them, but we don't take them seriously. We take them as more like a curiosity. It's why, with a moment's reflection, it was easy to see that Greta Thunberg, you know, the child climate activist, she was a puppet. She was a puppet being used by adult ideologues. We know better. 
So Jesus pinpoints then the disciples' misplaced attempts at social status. Are you willing to be taken as seriously as this child? That is, are you willing to have no status at all? But as we know, it will actually be much worse than this, because eventually it will be, are you willing to bear my name after I've been arrested and rejected and crucified and died, and the world is completely against you? Jesus then says, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. And this, again, is the great reversal. It is not those who are pursuing, pursuing status who are actually great. It's those who are not. But even then, Jesus is not advocating a race to the bottom. He is not advocating a race to the bottom of the social hierarchy, as in, let me prove to you how much status I do not have or how worthless I am. So, for example, in some Christian communities, good social status comes by way of people thinking that the things like church attendance and knowledge of theology and volunteerism or you're here every time the church doors are open or whatever, is that, that's what it counts as. That's, that's what's good. There are churches in our county that pride themselves on being exactly this kind of church, and they thank God they are, that they are not like those other kinds of churches. In response, and I think our church has been guilty of this from time to time, instead of giving in to that kind of legalism, we go the opposite direction and pursue our liberty, otherwise known as licentiousness. As in, we have a license to drive, and so we're going to drive the wheels off this car. So whereas those other churches are teetotalers, we not only drink, we brag about it. We brag about it and make it a feature of our church. Whereas they refuse to use certain words, we'll drop those words for shock effect. Watch this. So legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same problem. And they assume the same thing. Status within the Christian community is based on what we do or don't do. What I think Jesus hints at here, though, is that it absolutely is not. And he hints at it by use of his, that phrase, in my name, which Paul later develops more fully in his letters. So consider what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh that is in his body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you belong to Jesus, you are really and truly crucified with him at Golgotha. That's what Paul says. You have been atoned for. The law no longer has a hold on you. As was promised with the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, God has given you a new heart with his law written on it. Or as Paul says, God was revealed in me. That means in turn that you are actually and truly united to him right now through the Spirit. And you've been given a new identity, a whole new being in Christ. So Paul is not being figurative when he says, you are in Christ. It's literal. The same is true for the use of the phrase, you are a new creation, in places like 2 Corinthians 5. It's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor for some kind of spiritual growth. No, he actually means that though you are waiting on the resurrection of your body, you already are a new creation in Christ, and you are already participating in Christ's life and the life to come. 
This is exactly what he has in view in Galatians 3, when he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this life and the status we have as sons and daughters, it's a gift. It's not your creation. It's not something you cultivate. That's what the Galatians were trying to do through circumcision, even though they had already been baptized into Christ. That's the, what the disciples were arguing when they debated, who is the greatest? I think it's me. Not you. It's me. When you are in Christ, you are no longer an isolated individual separated from God by your sin. No, you are literally Paul in Christ or Rob in Christ. And there is no you without him. The old life is gone. The new life has come. So being a Christian is not like putting on a costume in Halloween. It's not you know, one more outfit we wear alongside all other outfits. You know, so often Christians read Paul as saying, through Christ you've been forgiven and atoned for. Now go do good works. And by the way, here's the Holy Spirit that kind of functions like the force to help you on your way. That you're able to do good at all. That you have begun to desire to keep the law is not your work. It is Christ that is at work within you. There's no good thing you do apart from him. And this is precisely what Jacob saw in Genesis 28. So then, when you think about both forms of legalism, the kind that tries to pursue salvation through good works, like Islam, and the kind that pursues social status, like Paul was doing, neither of them makes sense with the gospel. So go back to what Paul says earlier in chapter 3. If you were baptized into Christ, then you put on Christ. You're no longer marked out as belonging to the world or to yourself. You don't have to justify anything about yourself. There's nothing to prove, nothing to gain, no status to keep up. No, you, you are not your own, but instead you belong. Body, heart, mind, soul, every last cell of your being to this God who indwells you. So the debate over who is the greatest is nonsensical in the kingdom of God. It makes a whole lot of sense in the world. But in the kingdom of God, no sense. No, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And because of that, you together, us together, are the sons and daughters of God. Now, to be sure, we're all given different roles. But that has nothing to do with our status. We are all in Christ and share in his glory. It's the difference, and I talked about this a year ago, but I think it's worth talking about again. It's the difference between success, you know, who is the greatest, and where do I rank, versus significance, as in I am Rob in Christ. It's the difference between living for self, hey, let's build a gate to heaven, and living for Christ. And success, it looks like trophies. It looks like winning. It looks like chasing after your dreams, and, and maybe you get them. It looks like the diplomas on my office walls. And you know what? In a certain sense, those things are fine as far as they go. It's what we think those things do for us, however, in creating value and worth, and in turn how we use them to rank ourselves against other people. That's the problem. Significance, on the other hand, is looking to be of value and use to others. It's putting other people ahead of yourself. It's why Paul, 
when he speaks about humility as one of the defining features of the people of God, that's Philippians 2, he begins with how Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, did not pursue glory or honor. He did not need to bring attention to himself or fight for his status. No, he humbled himself and faithfully submitted his life to God the Father, waiting on God to glorify him instead. And he did it for us in our salvation. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching his disciples by comparing them to a child. Now, of course, success and achievement, they do give a fleeting sense of self-worth and value. It's why we absolutely love trophies. But in the end, nobody really cares. Nobody who walks in my office ever mentions, I mean ever, mentions my diplomas, except other pastors. And with time, I found, you know what? I'm glad I got them, but I don't really care. I don't really care. And I used to care a lot. Being in Christ has given me more meaning and contentment and satisfaction through significance than I've ever gotten through awards or social standing. And that significance, it's come through things that, would, that the world would never hold up, ever hold up as a trophy. Things like, say, changing a blowout diaper. Where's a trophy in that? Or holding people's hands who are in pain or close to death or coaching kids who are of infinite value to God but perhaps will not go on to professional or collegiate athletic or musical careers and in turn they will not and they absolutely cannot improve my resume like the Jewish Christians were trying to do with the Gentiles in Galatia through circumcision as Chad Bird put it Names are written in the book of life, not resumes. It is enough that Jesus puts his name upon us and has given us the right to be known by him. He is the greatest, and he has delivered us from sin and death to his kingdom. With that word, let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the life we have in your son's kingdom that came not through what we could offer, not through the good works we could pursue up the ladder, but by your gift of grace in your son. Thank you for him, and thank you for the spirit that was poured out among us, that we have life, that we're united to him, that we are no longer isolated, we are no longer on our own, but belong body and soul, heart and mind, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in turn, we belong to each other. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.